If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, active fund managers under pressure and OPEC. Do they have a deal? Does the market care? This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Money Beat podcast here on a Tuesday in New York City. Paul and Stephen here in the studio, and we are joined by Packed House today. Yes. Yes. Uh, Our dear old friend Sarah Krause is with us, and our dear old friend Nicole Friedman, who, Nicole, we can't even get you onto the mic and get you a headset yet, but you're going to talk to us in the next segment about oil. That's good. And... Latest member of the Money Bee team, so I want to introduce Chris Dieterich. Some of you might know Chris from Barron's. Yeah, I'm sorry, Chris. Say, say hello. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. That's right. Welcome. Happy to join you guys. I interrupted your grand, your grand. Say, say hello to the Money Beat listener uh, world. It's great to be here. I can't wait to do this all the time it with is. you guys. Big transfer for you from the fourth floor to the fifth floor. Same, same, uh, same canteen, same gym, totally different yeah. world. Right. Same computer. It is it's like a bizarro universe, right? Everything's the same but different. I've hit four instead of five now, f- I think, four consecutive times. We'll see how long that goes. Yeah. Uh, what, the reason we wanted to have uh, Chris and Sarah on is we want to talk about a story. You probably have heard by now the merger of Janus and Henderson Group, Janus Capital and Henderson Group. Uh, kind of highlights some interesting trends going on in the active money, active money manager space, especially, and, and talks about the market in general. Let's, let's talk about this a little bit. Sarah, uh, you wrote the, sco- the story with uh, Ben Dummett. So... Why why should we care about this story? What is it telling us? Sure. I think this story um, sort of highlights some of the pressures happening in the industry right now as money flows out of actively managed funds. And by that, I mean funds run by sort of human stock and bond pickers, if mm-hmm. you will, um, and into passively managed funds like exchange-traded funds that track the performance of various indices. Um, and it's something that we've seen accelerate over the last couple of years, particularly in U.S. domestic equity funds. So managers for whom that has long been the bread and butter, really starting to feel the pinch and looking at strategic options. How do they either gain scale to compete or how do they sort of partner with other firms that can broaden their global global reach or distribution efforts, et cetera? And I think that's what this deal brings to light. Yeah. And and Henderson's a U.K. firm. Janice is a, is a U.S. firm. So, I mean, is, is that sort of point out the fact that this is not just is not just a local story? It's not just local issues? No, I mean, this isn't just a U.S. Yeah. phenomenon. This is something that is happening more broadly globally. There are also regulatory shifts that are happening across the globe in term, that govern retail advice, for example. That's something that's been playing out in the U.K. for a couple of years. In the U.S., the DOL has put in place new rules governing retirement advice that are likely to spur further flows into passive funds. So it's, it's a global phenomenon. Um, and I think um, firms on both sides of the pond are trying to figure out what's next for them, particularly if you're a smaller mid-sized asset manager, you're trying to see what your options are. So what are the benefits of getting bigger? Scale. Um, it gives you a global reach. For, I mean, for each of these firms, it helps them sort of squarely um, you know, have an ally or have have broader reach um, for Henderson. It gives access to the U.S. where they've long had staff but are really trying to bulk up. And for Janus, it helps them reach across the pond to Europe and the U.K. where Henderson has long been a presence. It's What's so interesting to me about this is how actively managed mutual funds are still many, many times larger than any of the passive in the U.S., but you have really in recent years this sort of change-or-die mentality with asset managers who have who sat 
on the sideline for a long time as ETFs grew, grew, grew. This isn't a new trend, but it's accelerated. The flows out of active are going to be a record this year. Flows into passive, another record this year. So it's now, it's it's sort of now or never for uh, a lot of these legacy asset managers, and that's really what we're starting to see. You see it not only in the in in this deal, the potential for other deals, but but other things like trying to create these new indexes that are a little bit like active that charge a little bit more um but are not quite there you call it smart beta but even that the fees on those are are are, are immensely low so there's a there's a lot of pressure on an industry that still is in you know still has 80% of the market share. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, the to be fair in all this is there is still more money in actively managed funds than in passive funds. I think that can get lost in this conversation sometimes. And when you look at a deal like the Janice Henderson deal, I mean, these are two active managers saying we are remaining true to what we do. We're stronger, you know, and bigger together, so let's do this. We've seen other asset managers like Mason and others buy managers who specialize in index funds so that they can say, "Hey, client X, we know you like like this active fund, but what about this in passive? So they're trying to make sure that they can offer both. Well, the thing I think, of course, is very interesting about this, just being sort of on the periphery of, of all this, is Janice is the place where Bill Gross went mm-hmm. last. Was that last year? That was last year, right? 2014. Was it? it was 2014. 2014 yeah. God, time flies. So so Janice brings on Bill Gross, who's probably you know one of the biggest names out there. Uh, you talk about you know trying to uh, attract active managers and trying to attract funds. And and so they get this big name, Bill Gross, and I guess that didn't really move the needle so much on their business because now two years later, here they are going into this deal. I mean, is I, mean there I think it's interesting that he was hired to manage. He manages a billion and a half in an unconstrained bond fund. And so fixed income is one part of their business. Yeah. I think that um, a lot of folks know Janice from the tech boom where they, um, you know, they had some star stock pickers that rose to fame. And they, I think that's sort of how they became a household name in the U.S. Um, so I think the firm has changed a lot since then. And like a lot of other asset managers has tried to diversify. And I think that gross joining is part of that, trying to be better known in fixed income. You know, mm-hmm. so it's not just a, an equity shop or not just you know, one type of player. But, but there is this idea, though, that, you know, the, the star manager, whether it's particularly in stocks but also in bonds, and maybe with the exception of Jeffrey Gunlock these days, who's kind of ubiquitous and everywhere and has rained, raised a lot of money, there there isn't a lot of – the star power isn't isn't luring in money like it used to. And I don't even, think firms want the star power the same way that they once did either, though. I mean, I think that, that Gross himself sort of highlights that key man risk that you can get in a firm where when a founder, when a star manager walks out the door, if it's abruptly or not, you know, it can lead to pretty heavy outflows, and that's a business problem for you. That's No, that's that's absolutely true, but it's it's just so interesting to see that even even actively managed funds on the stock side that are beating the market, and there's fewer and fewer of these days, are losing money too. So there, there are enormous pressures here. Um, and so what, what's your prospects for future deals, Sarah? What do you think? There were a lot of questions yesterday, you know, will this deal open the floodgates to a ton of others? I would say that this is sort of unique in its structure in terms of the size of both firms and the the terms of the deal, a share swap, things like that. Um, But I do think that it is likely to see more consolidation in the industry. It's likely to see more small and mid-sized firms either be acquired or band together, um, you know, to try to remain relevant and and really broaden their reach if they're able to. Um, That said, I don't think there's necessarily a home for every struggling active manager. I think that we're going to see some funds go away and some firms perhaps not make it long term. I mean, the other point I would raise is this is an industry with incredibly thick margins relative to other industries. And so I think in some ways, leaders of these companies are still trying to get their arms around, like, what's what's next? What are my options? What is another company willing to pay for me? 
it's worth pointing out too that that the active management struggles n- not only in the mutual fund business, but the same thing is happening this year with hedge funds, right? Oh Where, yeah, you know you have three thirty four hundred hedge funds that are chasing the same you know outperformance, and everyone expects consolidation there as well. So this is this is across active management. And it's been a rough year in terms of returns for hedge funds. I mean, it, it is you know this has been a really tough year. But what, what, why? Why is that? I mean, look, you talk about uh, active managers having a hard time, talk about hedge funds having a hard time. Uh, we write stories about the stock market all the time about how much it's up and how it's going. Why? Well, what's so hard about this? Why is it so hard to, to, to beat the market? I find it surprising. I find it surprising that it's so hard to beat the market. It should be easy. Market's rising. Fed's got low rates. What's Should going I give on? You my this retirement is... assets, Paul. You want to manage them? Yeah, no, oh, no. Oh my god, I lose so you so much money. You would me very quickly. Isn't I mean, that the story? But, too? I mean, like I'm, when, I'm being when, a little. I'm being a little. When journalists start but, thinking they can raise money for a fund, that's when oh, you should get out of the market. Absolutely. Well, I don't think doubt. interest rates help necessarily, and I do think that you know, sort of returns everywhere, especially in low and negative rate environments, are becoming more muted. And I would yeah. say that as returns are lower, that does put a spotlight more on fees and the degree to which fees are eating into your returns. So I think that's part of what's going on mm-hmm. here is people are actually starting to look under the hood and saying, wait, what am I getting for my money? Is what I'm paying in fees eating away from my returns? Should I be doing that? I mean, yeah. like, yeah. L- listen, the market's at a record high. And we've talked about, you know, analysts expecting earnings to decline Right. Or, you know, the earnings growth to contract, to shrink for the sixth consecutive quarter. I mean, look, in essentially, I mean, I don't know if this speaks to all the underperformance, but, like, you have a market where central banks are raising all boats and, like, you know, stock pickers who, you know, look at the balance sheets of companies, look at their earnings. You know, they study that and they make calls. That doesn't matter right now. Yeah. And, the, and the calls tend to be – they tend to look for value stocks yeah. most of the time. And those have just been – those have lagged for years. So the Fed has done active managers absolutely no favors. If you think about hedge funds, you know, kind of being facetious, but there are studies that can show that since Reg FD, since regulations about what companies can share with people, that that's – Pretty much right when hedge fund outperformance just evaporated. So I mean, there's, there's once rock- they stopped getting inside information. Yeah, what what, what is more now? More or less. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. And there, there's sort of this um, narrative about the rise of quant funds, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, stealing little basis points of valve all the time. So th- there's a lot going on, but certainly the Fed has not done active management no. any favors. Yeah, yeah, and it's also like just central banks around the world. I mean, these markets are weird. I mean, like yeah, yes. I mean, like at the beginning of this year, the Fed raised rates. That's, well, in December, right? The yeah, end of last was, yeah, year. Yeah, end of last right. year. The Fed raised rates. Right. You would not have expected gold, which tends to be a, you know, a play of, or about concerned about inflation, to have its best quarter. But gold had its best quarter in yeah. the first quarter. Right. I mean, the, the Bank of Japan goes negative and the yen rallies. Right. No, no, you're right. You're right. Um, so I think the, you know, there's also that asset. There's a story that the markets are, are changing, and, and that's part of this. All right, we have to leave it there. Sarah, Chris, thank you very much. We'll take a little break here, folks. We'll be back on the other side of this important message. If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. 
I'm Katie Hill. And I'm Quentin Fottrell. This is Too Many Markets and More, where we talk about the most fascinating personal finance stories of the week. The selfie now kills more people annually than sharks. 75% of Americans tip less than 20%. You want to collect Pikachu? Collect Pikachu. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a cotton picking minute. What's so special about a Pikachu? For more podcasts, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast. Become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. And now look for us on the Google Play Music app on Android devices. Money Market. And more. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast. And look, I know you all subscribe to the Money Beat Podcast out there in podcast land. You wouldn't miss a single episode, and we appreciate your patronage. But uh, there's a lot of other great Wall Street Journal podcasts out there that you can find out. You can check them out at wsj.com slash podcasts. We have Your Money Matters, The Free For All, Speakeasy, WSJ Opinion, What's News, Heard on the Street, The Tech News Briefing, anything and everything you could want. You can follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts. You can become a subscriber. You probably know this already because you already subscribed to this podcast, but we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and your Google Play Music app. And now, Nicole Friedman. How are you, Nicole? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Uh, th- this is one of my favorite topics, really. It really is. It, within the markets, there are a lot of things that I like. One of my favorites is all the 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 the, 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 the Ajita, Michigas insanity that goes around every single time somebody says, "Oh, OPEC is thinking of cutting production," and we had this, we had it last week again. Yes, it was certainly a lot of Michigas, um, and it has raised the the time time honored debate of is OPEC dead. Or is it newly alive? Well, I, I found it sort of interesting. It was like going into the meeting. It almost had this, you know, fool me once, you know, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And it felt like traders were like, we're not going to get fooled a third time. But, but it's, it's, and what happened? It, it, they it's, were fooled. It's fool me every time. Every time OPEC has a meeting and these rumors come out that, oh, Saudi Arabia and Iran have finally agreed on something. Oh, Nigeria, any country has agreed. Well, they never you say agreed. The, that's the key. It's usually well, well yeah, well, that's a difference. A little better, it's right? usually going into these meetings that you know, oh, they're moving, they're talking, they're having discussions. Yes, but I think about I think it. what was different going into this meeting is the last time OPEC met, not last week, but prior to that in the right. spring. They didn't even come out and say we had constructive talks and we agreed to maybe agree on some things in the future. It they came out and said it fell apart. Like we could not agree on anything, and that really freaked the market out because we're used to OPEC building up a lot of rhetoric about coming to some grand conclusion, but then at least putting out a press statement saying, you know, everything looks great from our perspective, and right. we're going to continue to meet in the future and keep an eye on the market. And they couldn't even come out with that statement last spring. And so going into this meeting, I think expectations were maybe the lowest they've ever been for OPEC to come up with anything, and they came up with actually a lot more than the market expected. And so prices rose 8% in the last three days of last week on the news. Um, but there's still a lot of skepticism of whether this agreement or deal is a deal and what it right. means, if it means anything. Well, and, but, and I think but, but the, larger, the larger yeah. issue, which is getting, you know, this is all kind of prelude, folks, to Nicole's a, a, a breast piece, which is uh, a breast of the markets, which is that does OPEC even matter? I, clearly, they matter, but you know, but, but, but to, or, to what or, extent does OPEC or, still 
matter. Also, is the deal would the deal be you know the cuts they're talking about be too late? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I think we like all need to visit, revisit our own definition of deal. This agreement that OPEC announced last week does not meet my definition of deal. They basically came out and say we agree that something needs to be done, which is a pretty low bar for a deal. They have not come out with the exact amount of oil to be cut, who's going to be doing the cutting, who's going to be exempted, when this oil when these cuts are going to be implemented, and then also whose numbers they're even going to use. Iraq came out after the supposed deal and said, oh, but you're understating our production, and so we're not going to respect the production numbers that are reported. We have our own production numbers, and that's what we're going to use as a benchmark. So if we can't even agree on a baseline, how are we possibly going to implement any sort of real cuts? And so I think first we just need to throw like a couple huge grains of salt onto the idea that OPEC will cut Mm -hmm. in any meaningful sense. But then also, as you were saying, is it too late? And I think that's a really important point because, as we have seen, the U.S. shale producers have just become more and more cost efficient, more efficient in general at kind of getting oil out of the ground, hedging their production, raising capital. And so the moment that there's any cutback elsewhere in the world, these shale producers can respond very quickly and nimbly to increase their own production. And at some point, OPEC an, an OPEC reduction would just make room for another producer in Texas or in North Dakota, North Dakota to fill that gap. Yeah, and, I, and that's not un, that's sort of similar to what we actually saw in the 1980s when OPEC cut back and other people ramped up their oil production to fill the void. We did, yeah. There are some key differences between now and the 1980s that a lot of people like to point out, which is, you know, in the 1980s, there was a lot of contagion onto the U.S. banks, and there was a, you know, kind of a lot less capital available to the industry. Things like that are different, and also um, OPEC had a lot of spare production capacity in the 1980s, and they don't today. And so if there was some sort of a crisis that took a lot of output offline, OPEC is not as able to respond with new production as they used to be. And so that is a risk that some see as a potential cause to, for prices to spike in the future. Well, you know, I was going to say that the the decade I was going to use, I was going to talk about was the 70s, because I'm, I'm just old enough to remember the embargoes in the 70s. And I mean... You Nobody. You didn't your parents send you down to the oil station? You know, yeah, asked. yeah, it was great. <laughs> I told you that story. Yeah, in uh, the the seventy nine oil crisis, my cousin Tom and I were we got very entrepreneurial, and we were going to sell coffee and donuts to people waiting online at the gas stations because you'd have How to line up. Uh, terrible, t- terrible, terrible. Tom and I were not. We didn't really want to do it, and it was like, it didn't go well. It well, didn't you know, go we saw well. some gas lines the other week in the southeast because the Colonial Pipeline went right, down. You could have right. resurrected, could have resurrected this the business. business plan. But I mean, I remember, you know, OPEC, OPEC made a decision, and they thundered, and the entire world was affected. And people, you remember, people were lining up at like four in the morning. You had to go on these mile long lines to get gas, and I mean, yes. it was a big disaster. Now, if OPEC talks about cutting production or talks about doing whatever... Right. The market moved 8%, which was not enough to break it out of this range that's yeah. been in for months between $40 and $50 a barrel. And so clearly it is not as influential. Part of that is market share, that OPEC has less share of the global market than they used to. Countries like the U.S. have more than they used to. Part of it is 
the new shale drillers how fast they are, how nimble, how quickly they can react to changes in price much more quickly than, you know, offshore projects or Arctic projects, these huge multi-billion dollar investments. When people talk in the market, what does anyone say what it would take to get the price of oil, I guess NYMEX crude, back above 50 and, and keep it above 50? And is 50 even matter? Or is it just kind of a psychological? Like, what's the important numbers to look for? I think 50 does matter because 50 is widely seen as a number at which shale could truly ramp back up. And so between 40 and 50 is seen as the sweet spot because below 40, people think OPEC really will step in that Despite all the job owning and all the rhetoric, they have made it clear with last week's announcement that they are willing to at least collectively say they can do something. And maybe they're not going to do that something at 48, but at 35, people think they would. Mm -hmm. And so there seems to be a floor at 40 or even maybe the mid 40s. But there's still the ceiling at 50 because that's when shale could come back. And so what it would take to keep prices above 50 is either a larger loss of supply elsewhere in the world, which might come from, you know, areas like China, Norway, where production is starting to decline because of lack of investment, and that might continue to decline for years, or some sort of an unexpected catastrophe or violence that would take production offline. Or maybe the shale producers aren't as fast as nimble and nimble as we think, and they would come back less quickly, and they would ramp up, but it would take longer than the market expects for that oil to to actually hit the market. I wanted to just to touch on uh, the rebalancing in the oil market. You write in your piece that you know the, it, this year was expected to be the year that you know that the supply and demand rebalanced. That doesn't look like it's going to happen. Um, you know are we going to see that in you know next year? I mean, what what's the sort of prognosis, and why is that so like you know sort of important? Yeah, I am very hesitant to give a prognosis because everyone's been wrong, right? Like last year they said it was going to be this year, and in 2014 they said it was going to be in 2015, and so this year now everyone is saying, oh, it will be in 2017 for sure. And I am pulling the fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, and not giving my own forecast. Um, But I do think there is a lot of expectation that the um, shale producers in the U.S. have cut costs and become more efficient, but they cannot continue to do that forever, and that they have made a lot of the gains they can make up until this point, and that now we will start to see these hundreds of billions of dollars in capital spending cuts actually start to show up that the money that was cut in 2014 and 2015 is now going to be felt as oil that is not being produced starting next year and in the coming years. All right. Nicole, thank you very much for coming on. As always, we'd love to have you. Thanks for having me. And everyone, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you later this week. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.